senior pastors of Good Life Church in Newcastle. And um, they're just a phenomenal, phenomenal couple and longevity in ministry and, and beautiful integrity around their lives. They've got three children, three boys, teenager this year. I know. Um, and, but what many people don't know about Beck is that she's not only ridiculously good looking, she's also really, really smart and has a bachelor in science. So she's going, she loves talking about how God and science actually work together. So let's give it up for Beck. Open our hearts, get your notebook out. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to have some fun this morning. Um, yes. People who like science are the ones that just, woohoo, that was them, right? <laughs> Do you know, um, my husband and I have l- sort of watched on and, and learned so much from your senior pastors, Mar- Pastor Mark and Lee. Um, and you know what? You guys are so blessed in the senior pastors that you have. You are blessed. You know, the way they've done life and ministry and, and family is just incredible. But for a second, I just want to brag on your pastors, Pastor Sam and Carolina. Aren't they the best? Like, like actually, I have known them for well over 10 years. It's a long time. And it uh, makes me feel a little bit old. And you know what? The integrity and the character and the wisdom around their life, you, you know sometimes you don't actually realise what you've got. And I want to let you know that all across our nation, there are young people and older people who look at this couple and go, wow, look at how they're doing life. Look at how they're doing ministry. Look at how... And actually are in awe. And you guys get to have these people in your world every day. So you guys are so blessed. And, um, and I'm just so honoured to be here with you on your platform. So thank you for having me. We're going to have some fun. As Pastor Carolina said, I have a Bachelor of Science. Um, I majored in Physiology and Pharmacology, um, which is not pharmacy. It's different. But I basically studied the human body. It just fascinated me. And I thought I was going to go into science as my career, but God had other plans. And, um, you know, so obviously I love science. But I just want to get a little bit of an honesty moment. Who at school hated science? Like, let's be honest. Okay, I know there's some people in here lying who did not put their hands up because most people are like, eh, don't like science, right? Um, I loved science. And so my goal today is to make science fun and hopefully we'll learn some stuff at the same time. It'll help you in your work, walk with God at the same time. It's a funny thing, you know, how we separate science from our spiritual life. You know, we have, oh, I have my, my time with God and my spiritual life and, and science is over here and they don't kind of mix. I think we forget sometimes that God actually invented science, okay? He's not opposed to science. He created science. And so it's totally okay for us to be Christians and love science at the same time. But there's a struggle that a lot of Christians have, which is where we love God and we want to believe what the Bible says, but sometimes we struggle to believe everything the Bible says. So in other words, we'll read the Bible and it will say that God loves us and we're like, yep, cool, got that. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, cool, got that. Then it says, you know, God created the world in six days and you go, yeah, but the science doesn't say that. And then we try to work out, okay, how can I have this sort of hybrid thing where I go, okay, maybe God used evolution to create the world. Maybe that's how it all worked. And what we're trying to do is kind of believe the Bible and believe science at the same time. But the reality is 
there's actually a stack of evidence, scientific evidence, for creation. And there's also a stack of scientific evidence against evolution. You just don't hear about it in the media or at school or at university. Um, I just want to, before we go too much further, I just want to really underline what Pastor Carolina said. This is not to provide a weapon, okay? We don't argue people into the kingdom of God right? We don't argue them to a point of salvation. We love them. So today I want to bring revelation and I, I really pray that it will help you in your walk with God. And as your walk with God has helped, then we're able to help others, right? But it's not a weapon, it's for revelation. So before we start, two quick things you need to know. The first thing you need to know is that the argument between evolution and creation is actually not even about the science. It's about worldviews. It's about our worldview. So you can have an evolutionist and you can have a creationist and they can be looking at the exact same piece of scientific data. And the evolutionist will see evidence for evolution and the creationist will see evidence for creation. Because the evolutionist is coming from a worldview where there is no God. So when they look at the evidence, they are looking for evidence to prove that there is no God. Does that make sense? Whereas the creation, the creation, as a Christian, as we look at all, you know, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. So when we look at the evidence, we see evidence for a creator, right? It's actually not about the science. It's about our worldview. The other myth that evolutionists will spread is that all true scientists believe in evolution. They want you to think that science is on their side. And Every scientist, if they're a true scientist, believe in evolution, and it's only religious nutjobs that believe in creation. This is actually flat out not true. There's actually a, a great website you can check out. It's called descentfromdarwin.org, and it's going to go up on the screen in a second. And it lists over a thousand scientists who have written, you know, signed their name as signatories to a declaration saying that they disagree with evolution. Now, these, a lot of these scientists are Christians, but there's an awful lot of atheist scientists that have signed this, this um, declaration saying there are serious scientific problems with the theory of evolution, and we need to look at some other option here. Now, just to let you know, with this list of a thousand scientists, Someone like me, I've got a Bachelor of Science, I can't sign this. To be able to sign this list, you must have a PhD minimum qualification. So these are respected scientists at the top of their game that have signed this, saying, you know what, evolution doesn't actually stack up. So when you hear someone say, oh, science is on the side of evolution, it's just flat out not true, all right? So what we're gonna do, um, we're gonna start with something really easy, a little bit of physics. Everyone love physics? Nice and easy? I'm going to make it easy. I'm going to ask my uh, two first two volunteers to come on up. They can jump up here. I'm going to give them a bit of physics. Here we go. That's for you. And, okay, what we have here, I have a frying pan with a piece of bread. All right, so you can have this one. Now, you can just hold that. And uh, I'm going to talk with you first, and then I'll talk to you, and then I'm going to come back to you, all right? What you've got here is a piece of bread, okay? Just a normal piece of bread. Now, what I want you to do, here's your challenge. I would like you to toast that bread just while you're standing here, okay? You can work on that. Think about how you might cook the bread. Yeah, work on that, all right? See, physics is easy. Okay, what I'd like you to do is just bounce the ball. Okay, great. Bounce it a few more times. Okay. Now, what I need you to do, it's not the bounciest ball, is it? That's okay. What I need you to do, I want you to just bounce the ball and just keep it bouncing, but stop hitting it. 
No, 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 you've got to keep it bouncing. Uh, stop bouncing, right? I need you to actually keep it bouncing. No, no, keep it like at the... It's not going to happen, right? We all know he can't keep that ball bouncing unless he keeps hitting the ball, correct? So you all know physics. Okay, let's come back here. How are we going with the bread? Okay, has it cooked? No. So you've failed in your task. Okay, again, we all knew he can't cook the bread by standing there, right? To keep this ball bouncing, you've got to keep adding energy pushing the ball with your hand. To cook the bread, how do we do that? We have to add energy in the form of heat, right? This is something called the second law of thermodynamics. And this is a law of physics that's as fundamental as the law of gravity. Now, we all know the law of gravity, but we don't think we know the, law of sec the second law of thermodynamics. But you all do, because you all knew that there's no way we can cook the bread without energy being added to it in the form of heat. You all knew we can't keep that ball bouncing without adding energy in the form of whacking it with our hand, right? This is the second law. Thanks, guys. I'll grab that back. So how on earth does that relate to evolution, is what you're asking, right? Yeah, that's what you're asking. <laughs> the second law of thermodynamics says that when something is left alone, like no external force or energy added to it, it will just naturally go from a state of high energy to low energy. In other words, if you've got a hot frying pan on the stove and you take it off the stove and just put it in the sink, what's going to happen to the frying pan? It's going to cool down, exactly. Um, if I'm bouncing a ball and I stop adding energy in the form of my hand, it's going to stop bouncing. So it's moving naturally from high energy to low energy. Another way to put it is things go from high complexity to low complexity. They break down. Things fall apart. Things rust. I think we've got a rusty old car in the, in the picture there. You, can't, you don't see cars getting better when they're left out in the elements. They break down and fall apart. Does that make sense? That is the second law of thermodynamics. Now, the theory of evolution says that randomly and spontaneously, all by itself, we had a very, 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 very simple initial cell. Let's start from the cell. And that all by itself, it has evolved to higher complexity and higher energy. Every time it's evolved, it's gone from lower energy to higher energy. Every time it's evolved, it's gone from low complexity to high complexity with no help from anything or anyone. Completely randomly, completely on its own. This completely contradicts the second law of, of thermodynamics. And let me tell you something, you don't argue with a law of physics. This is a fundamental law of physics that you just don't mess with. And yet evolution is expecting us to believe something that goes completely against a fundamental law of physics. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that evolution is impossible, flat out. Okay, that's enough physics for anyone. Let's move on to some biology. We are made up of about 37 trillion cells. And a cell is what they would call the smallest living thing. Okay, anything smaller than that, they don't class as a living. A cell is the smallest living thing. And you can get organisms that are literally one cell. That is the entire organism. Now, cells, we're going to talk about cells, we're going to talk about proteins, we're going to talk about amino acids. Okay, now proteins are not just what you drink before a workout, and they're not just what you throw on the barbecue. Okay, proteins are actually the machinery of your cells, and they also make up the structure of your cells. Okay, so if you don't have proteins, you don't have a cell. 
Okay, every function of a cell is done by proteins. And proteins are made of things called amino acids. So three terms to remember, amino acids, proteins, and cells, right? Here we go. Evolution says that 5.3 billion years ago, we just had on the Earth just some rocks and some random chemicals and some random gases. And that one day, all by themselves, these chemicals or gases reacted with each other and literally went from no life to life. And these, in this, in this uh, reaction, amino acids were formed. Now, in other words, you've got no life, you've got rocks, you've got gases, you've got chemicals. Something happens, there's some kind of chemical reaction and you end up with some amino acids. Scientists then go, okay, and then it was only a matter of time and then the amino acids became proteins and then the proteins became living cells and voila, we're good. We go from there and we've got elephants and giraffes and trees and insects and fish and just like that. So in 1953, there were two scientists called Dr. Yuri and Dr. Miller, and they actually did an experiment. They wanted to try and prove that this was possible, that you could get life from non-life. So what they did, they put all the ingredients to make these amino acids into a, into a container. They added the right chemicals, the right gases, and they added a spark to kick off the experiment. And the result was they ended up with a container with some amino acids in it. Okay, we're going to pretend these beads are amino acids. So they ended up with this container full of it with, with some amino acids. And the scientific world went nuts. They were like, this is proof that you can get life from non-life through a chemical reaction. And this experiment and this assumption, based on this little container of amino acids, forms the foundation of evolutionary theory. Because at some point for evolution to work, you've got to be able to have something that was not alive, not living, and then something that was alive, living. And so they go, okay, well, if amino acids make proteins and proteins make cells and cells are the smallest living thing, then if we can get amino acids in the container, then we've got proof that you can get life from non-life. And as I say, this makes up the foundation of evolution and it's taught in our high schools. It was taught to me when I was in high school a long time ago, and it's still taught in our high schools, including our Christian high schools today. So I'm going to ask my next volunteers to come up, and we should have a bit of a table and chairs. Awesome. If you want to sit at the table there, Dave and Chelsea, yes. Love this couple. There's actually a bunch of problems with this particular experiment, and when I teach this with my students, I go through about seven or eight different problems. We're only going to mention a couple today. The first problem is, you've got to remember, we want to get to the, our end result needs to be a living cell. And what we have is a container of amino acids. So we've got to go from amino acids to proteins to cells. So the next step after you've got the amino acids is to get to your protein. And this is where we hit our first problem. To create a protein from the amino acids, the cell uses a machine called a ribosome. So a ribosome is what converts your amino acids into your proteins. So to get our very first protein billions and billions of years ago from those amino acids, you need to have a ribosome. Problem with that is a ribosome is a protein. So way back, 5.3 billion years ago, when we had our very first amino acids and we want to get our very, very first protein, to create the protein from the amino acids, you need a ribosome, which is a protein. We've got some problems here. It's a little bit like the chicken and the egg, right? You need a protein to make a protein. How does, this, how does this come about? Now, our second problem. We have over here our volunteers. Can everyone see Dave and Chelsea? You guys can put on your little masks. 
Actually, before you do, you can take the lid off here because I'm not going to do that with one hand. So what they have in front of them, they have a little container with some beads. <laughs> they have a mask, so they're blindfolded. And this is where it's going to get dangerous because these are sharp knitting needles. You're going to have one. Don't wave them around. Here's one for you. Okay, and you've each got your little container. So just sit there quietly for a second. <laughs> okay, now you've got your blindfolds on, right? It's important they don't see. Okay, so with this experiment that Dr. Yuri and Dr. Miller did, they ended up with their little jar of amino acids. Now, to make a protein, be good. <laughs> to make a protein, what happens is these amino acids need to form a chain, and that chain then gets folded into a specific 3D shape to become the protein. Okay, but all they've got currently is a jar of amino acids. So the first thing that needs to happen is these amino acids need to form a chain. Here it is here. Remember, this all has to happen completely randomly, okay? But the important thing to know is to make a protein, these amino acids have to be in the right order, okay? If these aren't in the right order, remember, it has to happen completely randomly because that's how evolution works. If these aren't in the right order, they're not going to make the protein. So we're going to test this. We're going to see what are the chances that Dave and Chelsea can put the beads in their container in the right order completely randomly. You guys can start. What you've got to do is start threading your beads. That's right. So they've got 10 beads they're going to put on their knitting needle. Now, it's slightly too long for the knitting needle. So when you get to bead number 10, just hold them on, all right? And we're going to see if they can get them in the same order as what I've got here with mine, OK? Just show of hands, who thinks they're going to get it right? Come on, someone's got to have faith in them, right? No. Of course they're not going to get it right. This is random. This is... Okay, we're nearly done. Chelsea's done. Dave's <laughs> taken a while. <laughs> Come on. All right, let's see how Chelsea's done. Do you want to hold yours up a little bit? Okay. So, oh, she's started pretty well. So they've both got brown, a big brown round one at the bottom. That's good. And then she went... Wrong. Very, very wrong. So she didn't get close, right? She's not even close. Okay, let's see how Dave's going. Okay, that's it. That's it. Hold it up. Now, so he's got a green big one at the bottom. It's hidden by his hand. I've got a brown one, so he has not started off. I don't think you've got any in the right spot. You're not very good. <laughs> All right, you're good. You can take your blindfold off. Okay, no one in this room thought that they were going to get, randomly, those beads in the right order, correct? None of us. And we're only talking about 10 beads. Now, in a protein, the average protein is about 300 amino acids long. Thanks, Dave and Charles. You did great. The average protein is around 300 amino acids long. But let's, let's work out, let's do some maths here. Let's work it out on a really simple one. Let's just do like 100 amino acids, okay? We've just seen it can't happen with 10. But let's have a look and see what the chances are with 100. The statistical probability of one very simple 100 amino acid chain forming by random chance is, I can't say the number, so you're going to have to look at it on the screen. Oh, hang on. Skip forward a couple more. Sorry. Here we go. There we go. OK, sorry, I skipped a second. 
This is the chance of Dave and Chelsea getting all 10 beads in the correct order. It was one chance and 3,628,800. So I was pretty confident that I could do this and know that they wouldn't get it right on those odds, right? But the chance of getting 100 amino acids in the right order by random chance is this next number here. That's one chance in 10 with 190 zeros. 190 zeros. I don't even, I can't even say that number. I don't know what, how big that is. So let's put it into perspective. I mean, that's a lot of zeros. And I had to type all them out and count that I had the right number of them too. That's a lot of zeros. So just how big is it? Okay, if you're 20 years old in this room, you've been alive for 647 million seconds. So we don't have enough zeros yet. If you're 1,000 years old, congratulations and welcome. You have been alive for 31.5 billion seconds. We still don't have enough zeros. The chance of you winning Powerball twice in a row is one chance in 6.4 quadrillion, and we still don't have enough zeros. Scientists estimate that the number of stars in the observable universe is seven septillion, and we still don't have enough zeros. Evolutionists believe that the universe is 13.7 billion years old. That is 432 quadrillion seconds. So if we go with their theory of 13.7 billion years, we still haven't had enough seconds since the Big Bang, wow. even if we had multiple tries per second to get our 100 amino acid chain, not even once. And they want us to believe that this has happened over and over and over and over, countless times, not just with a simple amino acid chain, but with every organism on the planet. We don't have those kinds of odds. And problem number three, Dr. Yuri and Dr. Miller put a whole lot of time and effort and expertise and intelligent design into creating their experiment and it still didn't work. Doesn't prove random chance, right? All right, let's move on. We're gonna take a look at something we all wanna save, the whales. Now, evolutionists will tell you, there we go, evolutionists will tell you that the evolution of whales is one of the best examples they have in the fossil record. So this is the one they go, this is it, we've shown it's possible. Yeah. They believe that the whales evolved from a mammal called Pachycetus. And when they initially found the fossil remains of the Pachycetus in the early 80s, um, they reconstructed it as a whale-like creature, complete with blowholes and flippers. Go back a few. There we go, there it is, there's our creation. Um, this is 1983, Science Magazine, this is after they found the, the, um, the pieces of the bone and they reconstructed it to look like this. This was whale's ancestor. The problem was, they took an awful lot of artistic license because these shaded parts on the skull, that's all they found. So they found those shaded parts and they went, oh, we think it's gonna be a whale, so let's use other whale fossils to create our whale. And then it gets worse. By 2001, they'd found a, a lot more of the skeleton. Okay, they'd unearthed a whole lot more of this particular skeleton. And they had to change the reconstruction to fit this, this um, skeleton. And it was clearly now a land-based mammal. But the whale, sorry, the evolutionists still insisted that this was the whale's ancestor. So if you want to see what evolutionists call the walking whale, here it is. That's the walking whale, 
according to evolutionists. Remember they're saying this is our best example of fossil evolution? All right, this is the walking whale. Just go to the next slide. This will give you an idea of how big it was. There we go. It's kind of like a large dog. Okay. You can go to the next slide just so you can keep looking at this. So this is what you're being asked to believe when you believe evolution. Now remember, statistically, we can't even show that it's possible to get a 100 amino acid chain, but they want us to believe that this evolved into the blue whale. It's claimed to be the whale's ancestor based on a particular bone in its ear. There was a bone in its ear that they went, okay, that's really similar to a whale's, bone, a whale's ear bone, so that must be the whale's ancestor. Problem with that is then after a little while, you know, they make new discoveries and they discovered actually it's nothing like the ear bone of a whale. So now we have a fossil of an animal that is nothing like a whale, claimed to be whale's ancestors based on the ear bone, which they now know is nothing like a whale's. This so-called whale ancestor is on display at museums all around the world, including the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, the American Museum of Natural History, the Encyclopedia Britannica website, um, and good old Wikipedia will all say that the Pachycetus, the walking whale, is whale's ancestor. It would actually be funny if it wasn't so tragic. And this is what they are saying is their best fossil example of evolution in the fossil record. This is the best they've got. So we've talked about some problems with evolutionary science. I want to just look for a second at how science actually points towards a creator. We're going to have a look at DNA. And DNA is really where all of evolution's arguments fall apart. Because evolution, uh, sorry, DNA doesn't just um, disprove evolution, it points squarely at a creator. DNA is like the computer, computer code of your cells. It's like a library of every bit of information your cells will ever need. But it's not just a library, it's a library that also communicates the information. And so it can communicate the right information at the right time to the right cell to do the right thing at the right time. The same DNA all through your body, and yet the DNA in a muscle cell tells the muscle to work, and the DNA in a blood cell tells your blood cell to work, and so on. Nothing happens in your body or in your cells unless DNA tells it to. So it's one thing for a physical structure to evolve. I th think that's not possible, but it's one thing to talk about that. But how does information evolve? How does, how does a computer code evolve? How does information evolve from nothing? Because if you can't explain where the information comes from, you can't explain where life comes from because it's actually the information that enables life to actually be happening. Let me put it this way, if I'm an app developer, I design the code to get the app to do what it's supposed to do. If I'm a software developer, I write the code to create new software. And if I sit in my office and I expect that software code to evolve on its own, I will be laughed at and I'll lose my job because it's ridiculous, right? Someone who knows a little bit about software is a guy called Bill Gates, you may have heard of him. He said this, DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we've ever devised. Now, we all know that Microsoft and Apple employ intelligent designers to write their software code. And yet Bill Gates is saying this is a software code that's more advanced than anything we could come up, and yet we're being told to believe that it's happening randomly with no intelligence behind it. There is six feet of DNA coiled within every single one of your 37 trillion cells. Six feet in every cell. 
On those six feet of DNA is every single piece of information your body will ever need. Your cells can create, create 20,000 different proteins. Remember, proteins are the machinery. They do all the jobs in your cell. And your DNA directs your proteins. 20,000 different proteins directed by your DNA. When scientists mapped the human genome, they mapped enough DNA in the human, in the human genome to fill 75,000 newspaper pages of DNA code. This is your DNA. This is in you. This is not a Lego instruction booklet. This is the most advanced code known to man. DNA is not just about blue eyes and brown eyes. It directs every single function of your cells. And it goes further than that. In 2013, scientists actually discovered that DNA actually contains two codes. They didn't find the second code for so long because it's literally written on top of, one is written on top of the other one. Incredible. Two different codes with two different jobs happening at the same time in your cells. This isn't just a sign of intelligent design, this is a sign of genius. In February 2015, last year, scientists discovered that the best way to store information is not online, it's in your DNA. In one gram of DNA, there is enough room to store all the information online in Google, Facebook, and every other thing online can be stored in one gram of your DNA. So, the idea that random chance could come up with a complex code like that is just ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as this. This is a book called International Business, A Managerial Perspective, right? I don't want to read this book. <laughs> but it's a lot of words in there, right? And yet this is not as complex as DNA. But the whole idea of this happening by random chance is as ridiculous as me taking these Scrabble pieces in this bag, pouring them out on the floor, and expecting to come up with that book. But okay, that's ridiculous, let's simplify it. Here I have a book called Mr. McGee and the Perfect Nest by Pamela Allen. It's a bit more simple than the other book. Okay, a lot more simple. I'd much rather read this one, right? So. Again, it's asking us to believe that if I pour these scrabble pieces on the ground, that I'm going to come up with this. Anyone think that's going to happen? What about if I kept trying for 5.3 billion years? Is it going to happen then? No. We buy and sell information. We communicate with information. Information is the currency of today. And every time we receive information, we know it's come from a mind. We always know it's come from an intelligent mind who's written those words or written that code. But if I use my Scrabble letters, I'm not going to do it, I don't have time. If I use my Scrabble letters, if you want to put the next one up, to form a word, you all know that we put those letters together to form a word. A word communicates information and a word tells us that there's a mind behind it. And so it is with DNA. The only thing that makes sense of DNA is an intelligent mind behind it writing the code. And not just writing the code, but then making it actually carry out what that code says. How do we explain the fact that DNA stores more information in one human cell than the most advanced supercomputer on the planet? There's an intelligent mind at work. 
Even your DNA declares the glory of God, points straight at a creator. I'm going to ask the keyboard to come up and join me. We've talked a lot of science and it's time now to go to the Word of God because I love the Word of God. I'm going to read from Genesis 1. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes through six days of creation and describes what God did. We're going to skip down to verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Then the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Here's our biggest problem. And it's not atheists and it's not evolutionists and it's not the science realm. It's when we as Christians value the word of God, uh, the word of man over the word of God. If I'm a Christian, like I love science, I love science, but if I'm a Christian, I need to be a Christian first. My allegiance to God and to his word comes before my allegiance to what man thinks. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. Do we actually believe that? All scripture is God-breathed. Or do we take what science has said as gospel and then try to fit it into what the Bible says? So when the Bible says that the God created the universe in six days, do we look at that and we go, yeah, okay, well, let's try and, you know, weave science into what the Bible says and maybe God did it via evolution and maybe it was done, but it was done over millions of billions of years. And by doing that, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, God, day six is when Adam and Eve were created. Day three to five What that means, if you're going to say, okay, those days were just really billions of years, what it means is if day six is when Adam and Eve were created, day three to five means there were animals being formed, dying, and being laid down in the fossil record. Okay, that's why people want to believe all these years is for the, to fit with the fossil record. And so they go, okay, so before Adam and Eve, there was animals living, dying, and being laid down in the fossil record. Yeah, okay, we'll go with that. It's really dangerous, and I'll explain why. Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Eve and he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, the devil hasn't changed his ways and he still comes to us and says, did God really say? Did God really say? And when it comes to creation, he goes, did God really say he did it in six days? Did he really say that? You sure it didn't happen through evolution? And what he's doing is he's causing us to doubt God's word. Now, atheistic evolutionists are free to believe whatever they believe, but we need to believe the word of God. Because if he can get us to doubt one part of God's word, then we have no basis to believe any any of the rest of God's word. So then the devil comes and he's just not just saying, did God really say six days of creation? Now he's saying, did God really say he loves you? Did God really say he's got a plan for your life? Did God really say that he would take care of you and take care of your family? Did God really say? And he uses the same weapon with us that he used with Eve. He uses our desire for knowledge. In Genesis 3, 4 to 6, he says this, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and she ate it. We have a hatred of ignorance and we have such a desire for wisdom. And today's day and age, wisdom equals science. And so we're so desperate to gain it that we will take the Word of God and twist it to fit man's wisdom so that we don't look ignorant. So using our desire for knowledge, our desire to appear wise, and if we're honest, our desire to be like God, the devil comes to us and says, did God really say He created the world in six days? And we go, oh yeah, we could probably believe that because it doesn't really harm my faith, but it actually does and we don't even, not even aware. As soon as you accept the whole idea of billions of years, what it means is you are accepting that before the fall, the fall is where Adam and Eve ate the fruit and sinned and rebelled against God. If you believe that the fossil record was laid down billions of years before that event, you believe that death and disease and suffering and destruction were a normal part of life prior to the fall. So before sin, there was death. But yet the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. If the wages of sin is death, but yet death existed before the fall, then what was the effect of the fall? What was the consequence of the fall? It robs the fall of its consequences. It robs sin of its consequences. And it reduces that tragic day, the fall, when mankind sinned against God, reduces the effect of that day down to nothing more than a metaphor. See, when you lose the truth about creation, you then lose the consequence of the fall. You then lose any understanding of the power of sin. And suddenly sin becomes nothing more than some postmodern individualistic preference of, hey, whatever's right for you. Suddenly we're in a place where there's no consequence to sin. And suddenly we're in a place where we can't trust the Word of God. Everything about our faith becomes symbolic. Everything about our faith is nothing more than a metaphor. And it means that Jesus died for a metaphor. A metaphoric faith won't sustain you. When we're deceived into removing the power of what happened at the fall from our faith, our trust in God's Word is shaken and we don't even know why. And suddenly we don't know why we need a Saviour because there's no consequence to sin. See, far too many Christians today are struggling with their faith, struggling to trust God, struggling to take God at His Word, because our foundation of our faith is based on a story instead of reality. Jesus did not give his life on the cross for the sake of a metaphor. Understanding the truth of creation in Genesis 1 helps us to understand the devastation of what happened in Genesis 3, which enables us to grasp our need for a saviour. Jesus died in our place so that sin and death and destruction and fear and torment and pain and rage no longer have a hold over our life. We are free. He's given us life. He's given us freedom. He's given us purpose. He's given us hope. This is real. This is not a story. This is real. And I really sensed in my heart that sometimes we just struggle to trust God and we struggle to take Him at His Word. And the beauty of our God, He's not just a man of His Word. He actually is His Word. It is impossible for God to lie. 
So we can trust God. We can take Him at His word and we can believe every word that is in this book. Holy Spirit, we just thank You for Your presence this morning. Father, I thank You that we can trust You. God, I know that sometimes we feel like evolution versus creation, what does it actually mean for my life? It has no effect, but actually understanding the power of what happened and understanding the truth of Your Word impacts every part of our life. And Father, this morning I pray for every single person here. God, I pray if they're struggling to trust You, if they're struggling just to release their life into Your hands and release control of it. Lord God, I pray You would touch their heart this morning. Father God, I pray You would fill them with Your love, fill them with hope, fill them with purpose, Lord God, that they know that they are safe in the hands of their God, that You have a plan, You have a purpose for their life, You have good plans for their life, and they can trust You. Father, I thank You. I thank You for Your goodness, and I thank You for Your love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thanks.